Well, I talk to people fairly regularly who have a positive feeling about Jesus. Now, they may be down on the church. They may not like Christians very much, but Jesus, he's cool. And they especially like the kind, gentle Jesus, the one that tells us not to judge and to love our enemies and to obey the golden rule. But as some of you know, Jesus isn't always so cute and cuddly. In fact, sometimes he can turn around and say something that just about strips the paint off the wall. We're in a series called The Quotable Jesus, looking at some of the most memorable things that have been said by probably the world's most quoted person, and that's Jesus. And this week's quote falls into the category of, wow, I forgot that he said that category. This week's quote um, is from Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 37. Mark 8, 34 to 37. If you'd like to follow along in a pew Bible, it's on page 1537, 1537, or we're going to put the words on the screen. Here's what Jesus says. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now, it almost makes you want to wince, doesn't it? Recently, uh, Kathy told me something that she would like me to change. And she's right. Uh, I'm getting it. I, I'm working on it. Although even this week, I messed up. After 27 years of marriage, there's still more things you got to work on. A little while later, we were in the car one time, uh, just a few days later, and she said, asked me, because she's a lot better person than I am, she said, is there anything I ought to change? Now, just I was quiet for a moment. Many of you who know her know that she's got fewer rough edges than I do, and so um, I had trouble coming up with something, and then it occurred to me. I said, well, <laughs> there is one thing, and then I paused and she knew exactly what it was. You see, Kathy is a horrible passenger in the car. <laughs> My wife's father, Bill, was the perfect driver. He was always fully in control. She was never in any danger. She didn't have to pay attention to anything. She could just ride along, and that was her memory. But me, she's not so impressed with the way I drive. <laughs> she feels the need to provide constant help and assistance. <laughs> I won't go into it, at least not too much, but to say that there is no potential danger too small or too remote for her not to assume that I have somehow missed it. <laughs> so over the years, actually recently, we found a partial solution, and that is particularly in the city, I give her the keys and tell her, you drive. She is much happier when she's in control. Now, here's the deal. Whoever is driving is in control. And most of us like to be in control. You can choose the destination, you can choose the route, the speed, everything about it, and any suggestion from someone else within the car is not appreciated. So when I get and receive unasked for advice, I wanna say, I paid for this car, these are my keys, this is the, I'm in the driver's seat, and I can do pretty well at what I, wanna ple what I please. It always goes over great when I say something like that, but... <laughs> John Ortberg is a pastor in California and once commented that we're like this with Jesus. Uh, we find it handy to have Jesus in the car as long as he's not in the driver's seat. We like the help that he gives us in living our lives, um, but we're not so sure that we want him to drive the car. Why is that? Well, because if Jesus is driving the car, we're not in control. If he's driving, we're essentially giving him, you know, say, the password to our online bank account. We're putting him in charge of our career direction. We can no longer lie, gossip, manipulate, exaggerate, intimidate. Why? Because if he has the keys, he's doing the driving. 
Now, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you, we'll find out in a moment, that it's really not much of a sacrifice. We think it is, but if we give him control of our lives, we'll find actually that we're more alive than we've ever been before. And really, it's not our life anyway, it's his. And that bothers us. So the question I have for all of us today is, who's driving? Have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus? Or is he just in the car? Have you given him the keys? Or is he just along for the ride? I think there are three options available to us. One is Jesus isn't in the car. This is what I call the left behind Jesus. Or there is Jesus as passenger. That's the ride along Jesus. Or there's, as the Carrie Underwood song put it, the Jesus take the wheel Jesus. The first group, the my way, not Jesus way folks, have decided that they want to choose how they live their lives. And many are thinking, you know, I'm a better judge of what will make me happy than anyone else. The second group figures that Jesus is good for something, maybe to clean up a bad habit or to keep them from making a big mistake, but let's not take things too far. These are the ones who believe in moderation. Let's not get too excited or too fanatical, they say. After all, they'd like to have a little something left of themselves after Jesus gets done tidying things up. The Jesus take the wheel folks, well, they, that's a whole different deal. They've decided to trust Jesus. They believe that he's the wisest, most loving person who's ever lived, that he alone can satisfy their deepest desires. They've concluded that if they surrender their lives to Jesus, they won't wither and die, but flourish and become the people God created them to be. But it comes at a cost because we cannot encounter the living Christ without being challenged to change in some significant way, whether it's pride or anger or greed or lust or envy. That specific sin may be different for each one of us, but putting Jesus in the driver's seat will mean change. Jesus is clear about that there's no way for a human being to come to God that does not require surrender. Now that's a long introduction to set this particular text up, but what I wanna also do is give you some background because what Jesus says here comes in a context. Just in the paragraph that immediately precedes what we read in Mark 8, 27 to 33. I'm not going to read it, but let me try to summarize what Jesus says. He has just allowed his disciples to understand his identity, that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that God has sent to be their savior. They don't exactly get it, but what he also tells them is that very soon the religious leaders are going to try him, convict him, sentence him to death, and three days later after his death, he'll rise again from the dead. And they don't get it, they don't like it, they protest. In fact, Peter says, this is just simply cannot be. Now, what Jesus wanted to do was not only prepare them for what was going to happen to him, but he also wanted to challenge them with what it meant to be his followers. That is where he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. So let's look at what this is all about. And the first thing Jesus says is to deny yourself. Now, let's be clear here that Jesus isn't talking about self-denial in the way that we talk about, say, giving up chocolate for Lent. Um, He isn't saying also that pleasure isn't bad, or pleasure is all bad. In fact, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells us that everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So Jesus isn't limiting us to a drab, dreary existence. In fact, this world has many beautiful and glorious things, and he intends that we enjoy these things. They just shouldn't be at the center of our lives. You see, the denial Jesus asks of us is something much more fundamental and radical. 
The word denial means to forget one's self. That is to refuse to let self-interest guide and drive our lives. One way to say this is that the deni- it's the denial of self, not self-denial. That means that Jesus isn't asking us to give up a few indulgences, but to hand over absolute control of our lives to him. To say no to self in order to say yes to God. And the problem then isn't with pleasure, but it's with a distorted or misdirected desire. The second thing that Jesus says is to take up your cross. Now, in the ancient world, this would have been a familiar image because occasionally there would be someone who would be crucified. And what they would do is they would have that person walk on their way toward the crucifixion site with a cross beam, the cross beam of the cross, tied to their back. It was heavy, but that, of course, wasn't the most significant thing. They were on their way to death. But they were also experiencing public humiliation. Only the worst sorts of people were crucified. Never a Roman citizen um, For the most part, this was reserved for the worst of the worst. And when someone was crucified, they'd first be beaten, ridiculed, and spat upon, just like Jesus was. So when Jesus says that you must be willing to take up your cross, he was telling them that not only might they be facing death, they also would be facing public humiliation. Every once in a while, you'll hear someone say, my cross to bear. And what they're talking about sometimes is perhaps someone in their lives who's a little bit annoying, difficult person. Now, that may be hard, but that's not what Jesus is getting at here. What he's saying is that following me may lead you into trouble. It may make you an outcast. It may put you out of step with the rest of the culture around you. That doesn't mean we're to be intentionally weird. It certainly doesn't mean letting people victimize or abuse us physically or psychologically, if we can at all help it. But it also doesn't mean that the Christian life is entirely safe and risk-free. In fact, Jesus is saying here that there are risks, and the people that Jesus says this to face tremendous risks. Some of you know that after Jesus rose from the dead, after Jesus ascended into heaven, that 10 of the 11 remaining disciples would eventually lose their lives on Jesus' behalf. In addition, thousands of the first followers of Jesus also lost their lives through persecution. I don't like to scold people because, for one, I'm personally humbled here by what Jesus is saying. But I also, in reflection, realize that I'm too often a whiner, and I see that in others as well. Anything that smacks of hardship, it's an excuse for me to complain. I've seen people turn down the opportunity to serve the poor locally or to travel to a developing country simply because they've exaggerated the risks that are involved. That's not to say that we shouldn't be wise, but if some of God's precious ones are in a vulnerable place, should we not be there with them? And following Jesus means standing up for justice. It means looking out for the little and the least and the lost. And it means sometimes taking risks, not foolish ones, but nonetheless risks that may lead us into danger, not out of it. The final thing that Jesus says is, follow me. And this is where he's asking us to give up control, to let him drive the car. When he says, follow me. And sometimes that means we will not know where he's taking us. We won't know the destination, the itinerary, We just have to trust him. Now, I realize there are probably just a few of you, the spontaneous types, for whom that's really exciting. And the rest of us, though, makes us very uncomfortable. Jesus begins here by by inviting us to receive the invitation that he offers to each one of us. Last week, we talked about the Christian life, that it's a gift. It's a gift of grace given us through what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. The only thing that's required of us is faith. Faith to trust Jesus, what he's done, and that he can lead us into the life, 
the eternal life that God has for us when we're rightly related to him. But the Christian life isn't just an assent to a set of religious ideas. It also must be lived out, and that's what Jesus is challenging his disciples to do. Now, it sounds harsh. Why, you might ask, would anyone in their right mind do this? Wouldn't it be happier, wouldn't they be happier if we could just live our lives the way that we please and leave this Jesus stuff alone? And Jesus seems to anticipate that objection because he then lays out the risks and rewards. Let me read again, verses 35 to 37. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now, you may have noticed here that what Jesus is using is business language, profit and loss. You want your life to count, make a big profit? Then give yourselves wholeheartedly to me. And the life that Jesus is talking about, though, is anything but gloomy. John was another one of Jesus' disciples who was there the day that he said this, and he later wrote a biography of Jesus, what we call the Gospel of John. And at one point, John records Jesus as saying this in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. On other translations, older translations, talk about that as abundant life. In other words, the comparison that, that Jesus is making, both in Mark 8 and also in John 10, is the difference between a temporary gain that yields eternal loss versus a temporary loss that means eternal gain. So live, he tells us, not for the temporary, but for the eternal. The only things that can keep us, that we can keep, are the things that we freely give to God. And what we want to keep for ourselves, we're also surely to lose. There's a choice that has to be made between this world and the next. And trying to hang on to your life will mean that you'll lose it. We may not see it that way, but Jesus is saying that the advantages of the way of life that God has for us far outweigh the costs. You might find this interesting, but the word that, uh, the Greek word for life and soul that's in this text are the same word, and it could also be translated as self. That's why the message, a paraphrase of the Bible, says it this way, what good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? In other words, we tend to think of what we're giving up but what actually happens is that we get ourselves out of the way and we become more truly ourselves. In a sense, Jesus is saying, give me control of your lives and I will give it back to you and more. But it isn't easy to do. And we're stubborn. We have our own ideas about how things should go and we'd rather be in the diver's seat. Thank you very much. Except that every once in a while, we need to ask the question that Dr. Phil asks his guests on TV. He says, how's that working out for you? Because sometimes the way that seems best to us is actually destroying us, or at least if we don't get things turned around. And that's when surrendering to Jesus makes sense. I don't know about you, but I have wanted things in, my, in the past that I later figured out wouldn't have been a good idea for me. And at other times, I've actually grabbed onto something that I knew God didn't want me to have, but I wanted to have it anyway, so I found it eventually it was either disappointing or even destructive in my life, and maybe you've had the same experience. Since I was in college, I've wanted to run something, and you could argue that uh, providing leadership for City Church is a form of that, but I've got to tell you that my ambitions were a lot higher, much grander, and it's just not something that God has had for me. 
I've had to learn to trust Jesus with this, to say to him, I'll do what you want me to do. I'll obey what you've asked of me. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll trust you. And the reason I've learned imperfectly for sure, but nonetheless learned to surrender my life to God is because I believe, I really believe, he has my best interests in mind. That's why I've learned that life works better when Jesus is driving the car. So the question for each one of us, and by the way, it's a daily decision. One of the other examples of this particular story in in Luke's biography of Jesus, Jesus says this is something we have to do each day. And so the question for us is who's driving? And remember that there are three options. There's the left behind or Frank Sinatra way where we say to God, it's my car, it's my keys, it's my life, and it's my way. Or there's the ride-along approach where we want Jesus along for the ride, but we're not quite ready to trust him to drive the car. So we want veto power so we can hold on to a grudge or the pleasure we get from a bad habit or a secret ambition we're fairly sure that Jesus isn't excited about. But from personal experience and also from learning by observing the mistakes that others make, I can tell you that the ride-along approach ultimately is a miserable way to live. That the only way for us to find peace and contentment is to surrender our lives to Jesus. Let me read again, verses 35 to 37. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And then the zinger, where he says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? That means that when you surrender to Jesus, all you lose is the life that wasn't worth keeping and gain a life that's a lot better than the life that you lost, a life that you couldn't have kept anyway. So who's driving? Have you fully surrendered your life to Jesus? Surrendered control of your money, your career, your sexuality, your habits, your thoughts, your actions? Surrendered a grudge or a prejudice or something else that you're holding on to? Whatever it is, give it to Jesus. Now we're closing in on Holy Week, and here's something I bet you never thought of before at least not quite in this way. Did you know that Jesus once wanted something, something that wasn't what God wanted for him? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Jesus sinned. Many of you know that the Christian understanding of Jesus is that he was both fully divine and fully human, both at the same time. And in Jesus' life, he had to surrender to his father and accept something that would not have been his initial choice. Uh, Just over 12 hours before Jesus was crucified, He and his disciples were in a garden, and it was there that Jesus prayed. He knelt and told his Father in heaven, I don't want this. I don't want the cross. I don't want the burden, the pain, the shame. I don't want death. Yet, your will, not mine, be done. And Jesus submitted to his Father's will. Maybe today there's something that you're holding on to. Maybe you're holding on to everything. Like Frank Sinatra, you say, listen, I want to do this thing my way. Or maybe, just maybe, you've already seen the emptiness in that way of life. Then consider inviting Jesus into your life, giving him the keys. Or maybe Jesus is in the car someplace. Maybe he's even in the passenger seat. He's riding along. But you're holding on tight to the steering wheel because you just don't want Jesus to get any ideas. Maybe what you need to do is to identify the one or two areas of your life where you need to surrender to Jesus and let him take the wheel whether you're surrendering to him for the first time or just giving up control of something you've been holding on to, turn your life over to him. Would you do that? C.S. Lewis spent the early part of his life in the driver's seat. He thought that he knew what was best for him and looked scornfully on those 
who chose to follow Jesus. But later, in his 30s, he reconsidered and decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Reflecting back on that earlier life and the objections that he had to trusting Jesus, he wrote this in an essay. He said, in the New Testament, we're told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. Then he said, there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing. But this has no part of the Christian faith. And then he said this, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Let's pray. Father, what Jesus says here is extremely challenging. We all want to hold on to something, at least a little part of who we think we are. We want to have some control. Father, help us to know that you indeed are wise, that we can trust you, that you love us, that you have the best in mind for us. May we surrender our lives to you, first in faith, trusting that through what your son Jesus has done for us on the cross, that we can experience life, life now and for eternity. And Father, in whatever area of life that we might be holding on to something, either an ambition or a piece of anger or some kind of pleasure that we want to continue to enjoy, even if it doesn't really bring us joy, Father, may we surrender that to you, to give you the keys to the car so that you can be the one who is the Lord of our lives. We pray this knowing that you love us deeply. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.